Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episode discusses Alex Garland's Men, which certainly invites a lot of discussing. We also invite you to follow the Patreon for the free bonus content we're putting there, including our Your Next Picture Show bonus recommendations and Friday feedback posts where we respond to your thoughts and questions. We hope you'll come engage with other listeners to talk about what's new, old, and interesting in film. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Tupps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. We have had some tough decisions to make about this latest pairing, with Alex Garland's Men and Ninja Thyberg's Pleasure both in theaters right now. So we're honestly a little surprised to admit that the new movie we most wanted to talk about this week is about cartoon chipmunks who solve a mystery. It's, it's just because we love chipmunks, right guys? I mean, speak for yourself. I was personally vouching for this pairing and this new movie a while ago, but it's the Lonely <laughs> Island f- factor, mm. or is yeah. it, or is it the anti, or, or is it the not wanting to see men or pleasure? <laughs> um, uh, I, though I, though I've, I've, I still have yet to see men, which I'm excited about because I really love Alex Garland, but I do really like Pleasure too. I think it's a really interesting movie and would have been uh, a good one to. Uh, talk about on here, but uh, it's I, I, have, I haven't seen it yet. I'm sure I have seen men though. So, so I, I'm pretty sure we may have chosen the most uh, fun possibility here of, of, of those, but uh, who's to say, well, not, not to rush to judgment. I think in the end we chose uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers because it's the only one we can talk about without people kind of mishearing what we're talking about. Because sitting here listening to uh, to Scott say, "Well, I've never seen Men, but I do enjoy Pleasure." <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like that, the entire script for these either of those movies would be a mess. Man, I I kind of hope we get to Pleasure as a, a bonus episode because I, I suspect that that's one of those movies Scott and I would conflict on. I definitely think that between that movie and and men this one is just going to be a lot more fun to talk about but i guess we'll find out genevieve you want to set us up for what we're talking about in this pairing sure when disney plus announced a release date for its exclusive movie chippendale rescue rangers 90s kids in particular probably assumed it was some kind of feature reboot of the kids cartoon of the same name that launched in 1989 and wound up in syndicated rotation but the movie is something much more modern a live-action meta-movie built around the premise that Chip and Dale are toon actors, animated performers who starred in that short-lived series, and are now living in L.A., either coasting on their past glory days or trying to move on from them. Lonely Island member Akiva Schaefer, director of Hot Rod and our beloved pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, directed this film, which has the two cartoon characters repairing their fractured friendship in a city where humans and animated characters live side by side. Eventually, they're called on to help a human cop solve a mystery as well. The film is openly and carefully patterned after Robert Zemeckis' groundbreaking 1988 hit Who Framed Roger Rabbit, another cameo-packed, jokey noir mystery story where a toon actor and a human detective team up in a version of Hollywood where animated characters abound. So this week we're talking Looney Tunes and Disney Tunes with two self-aware stories that try to redefine the relationships between animated characters in the physical world. Please join us. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay out! named Eddie Valiant. Booga booga! Every moment they were together ah! was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! Please! It's a motion picture about friendship. Please, Eddie! Don't tell me I'm making a big mistake! Love. <laughs> Compassion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. A rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. <laughs> 
just in case our collective recent past hasn't fully convinced you how much difference a couple of years can make in people's lives, consider this piece of Who Framed Roger Rabbit trivia. In 1982, Disney had the rights to Gary K. Wolf's twisty 1981 mystery novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, and the company was looking for a director. According to a DVD commentary on one version of the film, Robert Zemeckis attempted to get the job, but Disney turned him down because he was a known failure, sitting on two recent bombs, 1978's I Want to Hold Your Hand and 1980's Used Cars. Three years later, Disney went to Zemeckis and asked him to take on the project because he was a known hitmaker, sitting on two recent smashes, 1984's Romancing the Stone and 1985's Back to the Future. A funny thing about that is that three of those four movies, all of them but Romancing the Stone, were made for Amblin Entertainment, the production company founded by Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. Amblin and Spielberg, who signed on as a producer on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, weren't under any illusions about how quickly Zemeckis' hot streak might loop back around to a cold one. But Spielberg did presumably know about Zemeckis' ambition when it came to special effects and pushing the envelope of what film technology could do. And as it turned out, that, more than anything, is what Who Framed Roger Rabbit needed. It's understandable that Disney didn't want to take the risk on 1982 Zemeckis. The issue wasn't just his track record, it was everything about the movie. Budgeted at a modest $30 million, the movie was considered the priciest animated feature ever attempted, even though it was mostly going to be live action. There had been plenty of hybrids of live action and animation on extremely small scales in the past, going back to Windsor McKay's 1914 vaudeville act Gertie the Dinosaur, where McKay appeared to interact on stage with a cartoon brontosaurus. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit called for the animated characters to interact extensively with the live-action world, touching and moving and holding and breaking things. The filmmaking was going to be difficult, and without any obvious past successes to look back to for inspiration. The licensing would be difficult as well, with Disney borrowing animated characters from Warner Brothers and Universal Studios, among others, in an unprecedented animation crossover. For that matter, the story itself was unprecedented, requiring audiences to take in some big conceptual ideas, a world where cartoon characters are not only real, but mundane, with the same job and housing and relationship woes as everyone else, even though they're also endlessly malleable and just about impossible to hurt, let alone kill. All of which makes Who Framed Roger Rabbit one of those unlikely outliers in American cinema, a film that only works because of the very specific combination of factors that fell together in making it happen. Zemeckis' willingness to experiment, and his feel for zany, cartoonish camera work in particular, gave him an approach to this world that's demonstrably different from what anyone else would have done with it. The same goes for animation director Richard Williams, who told Zemeckis that the traditional way of filming live-action and animation combinations, with a fixed camera and very little movement, would produce a visually dull film. He said that Zemeckis should shoot the live-action parts of the film exactly as he would any other movie, and Williams and his crew would just figure out how to make it all work in post. British actor Bob Hoskins, sporting a tough guy noir accent very different from his own, stars as down-on-his-luck private detective Eddie Valiant, and ends up doing a remarkable amount of undignified physical comedy as the toon world and its denizens bang him around. It's hard to imagine getting anything like the same kind of performance from Spielberg's first choice for the role, Harrison Ford, or any of the other men reportedly approached to play Eddie Valiant, including Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray, Robert Redford, or Sylvester Stallone. The movie works in part because Hoskins is a bit of a tune himself, playing a role that's as much a satire of a Dashiell Hammett gumshoe as it is an actual person. Even back in 1988, when every one of those box office stars were more open to experimenting with their images, it's questionable whether any of them would have been game to play things this goofy, much less whether they would have been willing to play exasperated patsy to a cartoon rabbit. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit does work, and not just because of the surprisingly sophisticated animation that gives its toon characters shadows and depth and layers, or because the comedy is solid, or because the nostalgia factors of the cameos are fun. It's because of a reckless fearlessness that reaches throughout every level of this production. Screenwriters Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, who tossed out nearly every aspect of the original novel except for its specific characters and the broad angle of a murder mystery, Trust the viewers to pick up a whole lot of information extremely quickly in the early going, without having any of it explained. Toons are real. They're more or less immortal. They're usually second-class citizens, unless they have stardom or something else significant on their side. Eddie Valiant is a frustrated, traumatized alcoholic. L.A. has the greatest public transportation system in the world. And a weird, creepy bastard named Doom has bribed himself into a judgeship that gives him broad powers over Toontown. There's a confidence in the way Price and Seaman establish all of that which borders on the uncanny, given the speed at which the film operates, and how rarely anyone actually pauses to tell us a factoid, instead of just acting in a way that illustrates it. 
a blend of comedy, tragedy, drama, and mystery here is just as fearless. In one of those tragicomic moments, Eddie Valiant's love interest Dolores tells us all what we need to know about the trauma that destroyed his life and turned a talented, dedicated cop into a booze-sodden wreck. A toon murdered Eddie's brother. In the very next breath, without changing expression, she tells us how. Dropped a piano on his head. The kind of leap from the grim to the absolutely absurd, the cartoonish, in fact, comes up again and again in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, with Zemeckis, the writers, and the cast all banking on the audience being able to keep up with the shift between scary and zany. Then there's Zemeckis' apparent confidence in William's promise to make the animation work no matter what, even if that meant having a 2D animated character spitting out real water, smashing real plates over his head, or leaping through real wooden blinds in a glass window, leaving a tune-shaped hole behind. Nearly 35 years later, the illusion still looks so shockingly convincing that when people talk about Roger Rabbit today, it's very rarely about the technical wizardry that went into the film. It's also very rarely about the clever mystery, which riffs on Chinatown as a public resource becomes a private one to make the powers that be more powerful. What people remember about Who Framed Roger Rabbit is how convincingly creepy Christopher Lloyd is as the villainous Judge Doom, or how they felt when they were younger, watching him execute a squeaky cartoon shoe out of pure, undisguised sadism. Or in another direction, how they felt watching Roger Rabbit's ridiculously proportioned wife Jessica slink around a nightclub stage, purring Kansas Joe McCoy's Why Don't You Do Right? while provoking the drooling men in the audience with physical contact and open contempt, in a scene that ultimately kept the movie from being released under the Disney banner. It's notable, certainly, that the film's biggest and most difficult technical achievements and building a visually cohesive world out of 2D and 3D elements became so invisible on the screen that they just leave audiences remembering when they were scared, or when they laughed, or when they were horny. In the end, Zemeckis took on a remarkable technical challenge and made it memorable more for the characters than for the struggle that went into building their world. I'm guessing the honchos at Disney who turned him down in 1982 were happy enough to be proved wrong. Drink the drink! But I don't want the drink! He doesn't want the drink! He does! I don't! You do! I don't! You do! I don't! You do! I don't! You don't! I do! You don't! I do! You don't! Listen, when I say I do, that means I do! Jeez, there's there's so much backstory behind this movie. It's just insane. Uh, and I could have gone on for another hour about it. All right. Do, do you guys want to prove me wrong to kick off this conversation? Are there are there elements of this movie that have stuck with you more than the, the villain or the femme fatale? You brought up the shoe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, you can't not think about the shoe, especially if you saw this at a formative age as, as I did. But watching it this time i was reminded of one of one of those sequences that is like burned in my brain just in a like in a happier way in a less traumatic way <laughs> than the shoe which is going through the tunnel into toontown and the smile darnia smile song and just that just the opening up of toontown is just such a it's such a moment you know and it does feel like the, the moment of recognizing technical achievement that you were talking about in that keynote, Tasha. Um, and I certainly maybe didn't recognize it as such when I was like eight years old watching this, but I definitely recognize it now and and felt that scene like in my subconscious watching it this time. Yeah, there's a lot of other things I recall about this movie. I, I mean, I, I think the opening is just so terrific. Um, I mean, for one, you're just creating a a character introducing a character in Roger Rabbit who, who I think is instantly lovable, you know, and has his little catchphrase is please or whatever. I guess that's the way he does is more of a slur. Like please. You gotta like, you gotta do your lips. Like, right. I mean, I think that that, I mean, I enjoy that little cartoon for one is very, very clever and funny. And then, and then just the, the punchline, just be opening on that set. And then and that's your kind of introduction into this world in which animation and, and um, you know, live action worlds sort of come together. I think that's uh, all terrific. Um, and I, and I really do appreciate the, you know, Chinatowny noir elements of it. I mean, this is, this is such a traditional LA noir, you know, where, where, which are always about, conspiracies involving you know city hall and you know in in various shadowy you know power brokers uh around around town it all it all it's all it's a very clever 
you know, and fruitful way of setting things up and that all that stuff about uh, public transit. I mean, that, 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 you know, there's some historical grounding in, the, in that stuff too. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that part of it. I, I just think it's, it's a magical movie, you know, this, this entire period for Zemeckis, he just kind of could, could, could do no wrong. Even in the stuff that those first two films you mentioned were, that were not, hugely successful they're successful in the sense artistically they're incredibly successful i mean Stop, I, we're, we're kind of read more about uh i want to hold your hand do you know any resources for that it's, well there's a criterion essay by a certain uh certain, uh young uh, young gentleman uh named me um but uh but there's a it, it's you know he was running hot and 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 this is a film that gets everything right i mean there's such a huge technical challenge the film is still remarkable to to look at and, and then, you know, there's this, the mechanics of it are so breathtaking as well. I mean, that was something I experienced I had recently watching Back to the Future with my uh, 11 year old for the first time. It's just like, wow, every little gear, every little spring, everything is just falling into place so perfectly. And, and, it ha- and Who Framed Roger Robert has that kind of satisfying engineering because there's just so many moving parts. It's such a complicated type of a project to get right on a million different levels, not just the technical level. So, uh, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of this movie. And, uh, you know, yeah, I really love revisiting it for this uh, podcast. You know, just revisiting it, I, I honestly wasn't going to rewatch it. I kind of had the feeling of, I've, yeah, I've seen this movie a million times. Like, it's just indelibly burned into my brain. And I thought, oh, you know, what the hell? I'll like watch the opening sequence and just sort of remember <laughs> how not just not just the animation, but like the in the immediate aftermath of that sort of how the story is set up. And I, I couldn't turn it off. It blew my mind rewatching it, how efficient it is in terms of that first 45 minutes or so, just like every line is important. Every scene is important. Every moment is important. You're always learning something. You're learning important things about the characters and their past and who they are now and who they used to be. You're learning things about this world that's like just a very strange and creative world, but nobody ever sits down and explains it to you. It's it's all on the screen. It's pretty late into like that that first act that somebody makes it clear that uh, Eddie Valiant is an alcoholic, but you don't need to be told that because you are introduced to him sucking on a fifth of wild turkey and uh, muttering to himself tunes. Like in that introduction, in that that moment, you can see that he's, you know, just kind of a, a grubby cranky, jaded, out-of-place man, that he hates tunes, that he drinks on the job. Just everything about him visually communicates something important about his character. And then when he goes into, like in the, the next scene, he goes into his prospective boss's office and he's staring at the booze on the counter and literally licking his lips. Like just everything that he he does, everything that anybody says is going to be significant later. I think I keep forgetting, for instance, that when Marvin Acme dies, that scene takes place in the set that will come up later. And like every element that Eddie will later use to fight the weasels, you get to see like stacks of the singing sword or the, uh, you know, the, the boffo hammer with the, the giant fist inside it, so forth and so on. There's like, there's so much scene setting. Like there are, there are a dozen like Chekhov's, uh, guns placed on the wall in that sequence. And all of it is just kind of like amusing background noise. And it and it's all going to come up later. And the whole film is like that. Every time somebody says something, I think, oh, I okay, I remember where that comes up later in the film. It's the craft of the script here alone is just it's immaculate. It's amazing. Can we talk about the the pictures on Eddie's desk sequence and oh like just gosh. all the backstory there, including something that like I don't know that I ever fully grokked to this before this viewing that uh, Eddie and his brother were clowns, mm-hmm. um, which total like before they became detectives, which to your point, Tasha totally sets up the his performance for the weasels later on. Like he has this set of skills to draw on, you know. Yeah, it's a touch to, to you know the the exposition by photos is also used. Back to the Future. It was mm-hmm. definitely something he was interested in doing at the time. I mean, what what an inspired bit of casting Hoskins is too. Like you know, you went, went through that list, Tasha, and like you can, you can kind of see Bill Murray working. It'd be a very different movie. You need someone like Hoskins who can play it straight, but also 
you know, understands what kind of movie he's in and, and can get in tune with it. I, I can't really, as much as I admire Harrison Ford, I can't imagine him doing that. And Hoskins is, uh, it's just kind of perfect. I could imagine him doing the entirely straight roles. I mean, the the part of of uh, Eddie Valiant that's just like a hard bitten detective who's down on his luck, like is is straight out of uh, Harrison Ford's role in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine the character, if you can imagine Deckard in Blade Runner, like I don't know, fighting a pack of cartoon weasels, it's it's just very very <laughs> difficult. Yeah, the when you when you look at these lists, I'm always hesitant to take these lists too much as canon in terms of who was asked to take this role and and who turned it down, but there are there are a lot of big surprises here, particularly in terms of who might have been Judge Doom. Um Sting was on that list. Sure, why not? <laughs> as Judge Doom? As Judge Doom. Who else? Uh Just a period where, St- where Sting was also an actor. That was uh it was a it was a brief thing and didn't really quite work out that well but he was fine i wouldn't i i think i think this is the right person i think they got the right guy for the role (laughs) i think uh i think zemeckis they used uh christopher lloyd quite well in a previous uh film i was gonna ask tasha in your research did you find and if there was like a relationship between Back to the future, working on Back to the Future in this. I mean, it was, uh, he was working with Amblin. Um, and I just have to assume that, like, working on the tech aspects of that movie in particular, that Spielberg trusted him and, and felt that he would be good for this. Amblin came in in 85 on the project. Like, they weren't there in 82. That was sort of a late addition as Disney realized how much the movie was inevitably going to cost. So I strongly suspect that Spielberg came through the door and said uh, something to the effect of, wait, you turned down Robert Zemeckis? <laughs> what were you thinking? This is also a period where Dean Kundi was his uh, director of photography, and that would can kind of continue on through Death Becomes Her and other like effects-heavy films. I'm not, I'm not sure why they stopped working together, but but weirdly, like Kundi becomes like the go-to person for anything in which live action mixes with animation for a while because he did both Looney Tunes back in action and Garfield back to back. So I guess it becomes like his kind of uh, specialty, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you never can tell unless you actually run all the links down. But according to Wikipedia, at least, Tim Curry like auditioned for Judge Doom and was considered too scary. And Christopher Lee was considered for it, but said no. And then John Cleese was not scary enough. Can can you imagine this movie with John Cleese in that role? No, but I also feel like I can't imagine Tim Curry being too scary and Christopher Lee not being too <laughs> scary. <laughs> Tim Curry is actually a really interesting. I mean, obviously, I would never give up Christopher Lloyd, but I think that could have been a really interesting fit. Yeah, one of the one of the other ones considered was F. Murray Abraham, which I could I could almost see that. But of course, I mean, it's just it's sort of endemic that like if you see a movie early enough in life and then you you watch it enough times, like these performances feel indelible to us because they're so perfect. It's possible that some of these people like Chevy Chase was offered the Eddie Valiant role and said no. I could see why people would think that he was uh, in this role. But like, can you imagine this movie occupying roughly the same space in your brain as like National Lampoon's Vacation, for instance, in terms of how you think of like the humor or the historicity of it? It's just a very different experience. I wonder if Dr. Rosen Rosen would make an appearance in this uh, <laughs> in this film. Um, anyway, you're right in terms of like when you w- once you see a film, particularly a film that has become kind of a, a a classic, every role becomes unimaginable as played by anyone else. Like it just like it has to be Bob Hoskins, it has to be Christopher Lloyd, and it does give you a sense of like you know how much of an impact an actor can have on a, on a movie. I mean, which is not to say that this, this movie could have been, could have been, and probably would have been really good with a lot of different people in those roles. But um, this is the movie that we have and we can uh, treasure, Um, you know, kind of going back a little bit about Zemeckis. I just think there's a very rare talent here in terms of being able to make this movie on a different, all these different levels, because you talk about his technical, know-how which is one thing which is which is a big thing which is which is a which is itself a, a, a sort of a rare quality when you're trying something that has is at least on this 
level of sophistication unprecedented. It's not unprecedented to, to try the mixed live action animation. It is. It was unprecedented to do it this well. And then he also has the mechanics thing, the thing where, where the, the payoff part, which we also talked about. One of my favorite things uh, in this movie is, is uh, you know, how, how Roger ruins the original take because he doesn't see stars as the script <laughs> calls for. And again, that comes back later. And it's just like, that is such a Zemeckis touch, you know, and maybe it's in the script too, but like, that's the type of thing that happens again and again. And in, in, in back to the future, you think about the, 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 the relative of, the Michael J. Fox character who's uh, in, in jail or went to jail. And then he, he encounters that same character as a baby in the past. And is like, get used to those bars, kid, or something like that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just that kind of, it's that kind of touch. And then the other part of it is just like, it's just, is that the film is so steeped in film history and, and kind of, you know, the history of, of Los Angeles. I mean, it's, it's all, all of those elements kind of play an important role as well. So you have to really know all of that as well. So it's, there's, there's so many different hats that Zemeckis has to wear in order for this movie to work on, on all the levels that it does. It also just works as a mystery too. I mean, it's a really well-plotted film, but also as you kind of touched on, my, my respect for this film deepened when I realized how much it was, you take out a lot of stuff and it's basically a true story. I mean, it's a true story from Los Angeles history, as you said before, Tasha, as much as Chinatown is. And I think it, if I'm not mistaken, at one point, this story was floated as a Chinatown sequel in those years between Chinatown and the two Jakes, a film we all uh, revere. Um, but, it, you know, that, that sort of respect for the actual history of the place they're depicting, even if it's filled with uh, cartoons of, of, you know, a bunch of cartoon creatures, uh, I think that really helps the, the movie as well. Yeah, it's just, it's insane. The layers of this movie are just insane. Focusing in on Zemeckis, I guess, as a, a craftsman here, I think maybe one of the things that most strikes me is like there's a ton of behind the scenes stuff on YouTube that's really fun to watch, like early tests with different actors, early tests with different designs, a couple of sequences that were cut from the film, um, but did get as far as the uh, shot the live action stuff and then did uh, just kind of like the the outlines of what the animation would look on top of the characters. And it's it's fun to watch, you know, segments that were were not segments that could have been were but were not. But it's almost more fun to watch. Like, here's what this all looked like without the effects, both because you can see exactly how much like insane acting Bob Hoskins is doing in terms of pretending that Tweety Bird is is prying his fingers one at a time off of a pole or, you know, f flying through the air, but pretending that he's being like lifted and thrown by a gorilla. But you can also see what the camera's doing, I think, a lot more clearly, especially in the Toontown segments. There's just some really wild, like, zooming and, and bouncing that the point where uh, Eddie Valiant is fleeing from the, uh, the unattractive woman and comes out on the, like, a ledge with at most of the building on that side gone and he plummets towards a, a um, a flagpole. When he catches it, the camera bounces several times. And when it's surrounded by animation, you, you kind of just like register it as like it's it's a big cartoon moment. With all of the animation elements gone, you can see that Zemeckis is just doing something really, really weird with the camera there. And there's a lot of stuff like that in the movie where the the camera, it, like I wonder if, to what degree he and Sam Raimi have ever hung out and talked about mm. like active cameras because they're at points in this movie where the camera is real, real active and is kind of a character in and of itself. And one of those places actually, in a way, is in that opening animated segment. The space distorts, the, the camera goes in weird directions. It's as though Zemeckis is kind of inviting us already to understand that this entire film is going to take place in a, a wildly distorting cartoon space. But it just kind of kills me that that opening cartoon sequence is just so manic and creative and yet so well animated. And then it effectively ends with uh, somebody saying that it sucked. You know, somebody is is <laughs> entirely dissatisfied with everything that we've just seen and, and even irate feeling that it went very badly. And that's just the first of like 50 moments in the movie where you either come up short against a wall, like 
you know, the coyote chasing the roadrunner, or you, you pivot on a dime in a different direction. I, I'm curious what you get in general out of that opening sequence, and it's, it's abrupt thud up against reality. Well, it's just a really, I mean, I think Scott mentioned this before, but it, it, it has to work as a cartoon. It has to like to match or, or outdo in some ways the classic cartoons it's inspired by. And it definitely looks like a, it looks like a 1988 version of a golden era cartoon, which is to say there's things that, you know, you just couldn't do an animation back then that it does, but but it's a, it's authentic enough that it doesn't feel out of place. But I think it has to establish, as Scott said, you know, Roger as, as a character, but not just as a character, but as one who can stand heel to heel with the most iconic cartoon creations <laughs> Hollywood ever made. And, and it's a, you know, he's, he's well played by Charles, Charles Fleischer uh, on the voice front. And it just, I think beautifully animated. He definitely, it definitely works. It, it's, it's one of many, many things that if it hadn't worked as well as it did, the movie wouldn't, wouldn't work nearly as well, but it, uh, you know, right away, I think they get it right. Another important thing that it establishes is the level of cartoon violence we're operating with here and the sort of the cartoon mayhem uh, style that that uh, we're operating in. But, you know, that's sort of like Wile E. Coyote, Looney Tunes style. And it's, again, important to the story because it establishes that you can't really hurt a tune unless you can, as we soon discover uh, Judge Doom has found out a way to do. But that is really kind of essential to the plot. The fact that, you know, you can just beat up on a tune and nothing will happen to them. All of which is a little wild because the, have any of you read the original novel? No, I've always been curious. I, I read it back in the day for uh, when I was doing uh, book versus film columns for the AV Club and I wrote a bunch about it. The original novel is radically different. The The mystery is different. The Everything about the story is different. But the characters are kind of the same. Um, but the world's very different in that when tunes talk, they they talk with t- like speech bubbles and then the speech bubbles hang around. And a ton of the book is just about, you know, tripping over speech balloons or like gathering up speech balloons to sell to typesetters or, you know, getting getting criminal evidence from speech balloons. And among other things, uh, yeah, tunes can die. Like the the whole story is uh, the the murder mystery of somebody has shot Roger Rabbit to death, and the the lead character is trying to solve his murder. So it's it's a very different kind of thing. It's a very different world, but it is still kind of a pastiche slash satire of um, of noir films. But all With- all of these archetypes are in place too. That that uh, in terms of like the noir, I mean, you said the characters are pretty much the same. Yeah, there there's a lot of setup there for specifically making fun of noir worlds, and that's something I want to to get into in a little more depth, uh, given how much this this crew loves noir. Just one quick side note before we do that: that if you enjoy the book, there are actually three more books. The most recent, of which was published this year, so this the, the the world of Roger Rabbit lives on in print. Oh, good lord! I had no idea. I tried to read the second one, and it was it was ghastly. It was unbelievably awful. Mm. Uh, and I wrote about that in the column too. I did not know that he'd written a new one this year my goodness this is called jessica rabbit colon serious business that's serious with an x and it is described here as a oh dear it is a um riotously surreal spoof there you go is this still <laughs> written by gary k wolf or did somebody yep, else gary pick k it up? wolf gary k wolf All right, a, well, no, who, who may be a tune based on his name we don't we don't know <laughs> Now I definitely need a break because I need a little processing time to take this information in. We'll be right back. Hold still, will ya? Does this help? Yeah, thanks. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> okay, so uh, Gary K. Wolf still making uh, Roger Rabbit sequels. That's that's good to know. Uh, we'll get into a little later on um, the the degree to which people have not been able to figure out a way to to sequelize Roger Rabbit, which makes me pretty curious how he managed it, especially given that Roger Rabbit dies in the first book. Uh, but then is miraculously back in the second book because the second book is a sequel to the movie rather than to the first book. 
But that's all water under the bridge. Uh, you brought up the element of of noir in the book. The, the book is very much a, again, kind of Dashiell Hammett era, like noir, hard-bitten crime novel kind of pastiche. The movie is riffing on Chinatown and is riffing on like all of these kind of noir character archetypes. You know, you've, you've got the femme fatale and you've got the patsy that she's married to. You've got the, the hard-bitten gumshoe with a history and like the... Tough, tough, but wise, but good hearted dame who loves him. You've got like the knowledgeable cabbie and like the tough guy gunsel enforcers that that beat people up. You've got like a corrupt shadowy figure at the top. Does any of this particularly stand out to you as like insightful in the way it's satirizing noir? Like are any of these, I guess, familiar characters, but with a twist, like commenting on the originals and in useful or interesting ways? I would say the one that the one type that kind of stands out to me is the relationship between the femme fatale and, and, and Roger, um, which is sweeter than than you necessarily get from a, from a movie like this, in the sense that the femme fatale is not uh, really that fatale at all, uh, but but is but who is kind of you know m- misunderstood and 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 you know and uh, and there, Scott, and- she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Please <laughs> use the correct terminology. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you, you get it. So to me, it's it's sort of a that's kind of a a little bit of a twist is to, is because we have you know this femme fatale with like the, the perfect uh, vo- vo- voice, um, and uh, and everything that, you know turns on a misunderstanding of this of uh, of the, the the thought that she is uh, having this affair when uh, when it, when it's all this this big setup and there's something fundamentally sweet and goofy about the relationship between between jessica and and roger you know you get those wonderful vacation photographs of the two of them together they're a charming team and and it's it's good it's it's fun to see roger is uh you know inconsolable at the news as he is again a great touch of the photographs uh of patty cake uh, you know, uh, uh, for for one, it just be, for one, for one, the literally play doing patty cake, and then and then having the animation effect of flipping the photographs, mm-hmm. so good. Yeah, it's but, a an, an innuendo that turns out to just be a single entendre rather than a than a double entendre. It's it's a really nice gag. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know to what degree this is even a noir satire, so much as it's just kind of a noir with the cartoon twist to it. I mean, it, it is. You know, if it, certainly it is uh, an exaggerated noir and it's a funny film, but I don't know if it's necessarily sending up noirs as such. Is that is that really too fine a distinction? I don't think it's a parody. Uh, I, I right, don't think it's right. mocking noir. But I, I think that Scott's onto something. I think the twist of like the femme fatale isn't trying to lure anybody with her sexuality. She's just being blackmailed. And the, the gumshoe isn't the patsy. Those are separate people. And the gumshoe, like, not getting involved with the femme fatale, like, he's attracted to her. He's maybe kind of embarrassed by his attraction to her, but he doesn't put the moves on her. She doesn't put the moves on him, which just feels, you know, very different from your standard noir. I think even just that one tweak, like, really changes the story in a way. Yeah, and, and tonally, I mean, it's not it's not impossible to make a comic noir that that's happened. Maybe, maybe... Uh... Maybe that's more a feature of, of neo noir than, than traditional noir, though. I guess I, don't, I can't think of that many films from the from the post war p- period uh, noirs that I would call comic necessarily, even though some of them are darkly funny. So, so uh, you know, the tone, the, the approach tonally is a little different, but it's it, it was not it would never be anything I would 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 describe as parody or satire. I mean, I can certainly point to noirs that feel comic or comedies that that are noir, but nothing this slapsticky, nothing this this over the top goofy. I mean, one of the things about this movie, I, I kind of talked about this in the keynote, is it's just like we we talk about as as film critics, we very often talk about movies that uh, have a lot of tonal conflict that are trying to kind of like cram slapstick comedy up against drama. Uh, but in this case, we've got like, we've got a horror elements. We've got like children's cartoon elements. We've got a mystery. We've got comedy. Like how, what makes this movie so different? Why do all of these tones work together in this story so well when, when so many movies that try to do just two things completely fall apart? And like to to, to to more like to complicate your question rather than answer it, like how do you have a movie in which a, a, a functional noir 
with a mystery that actually works and with some real darkness to it in which characters like Betty Boop and Dumbo show up without breaking character in any way. It's like, not like a dark, I mean, there's, I guess it's Betty Boop's fate is a little, uh, is a little bittersweet, but, but, but she's not like a dark and gritty Betty Boop. Um, and, <laughs> and Dumbo is just Dumbo. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll add to your question by saying, well, what, how does that possibly work? I mean, I think it being at heart a Hollywood story is is a big part of it mm. because it allows for so much referencing of like different types of performance and, you know, all these different tones within, you know, something that is never shy about the fact that it, it, it's a movie uh, and the fact that it is a movie is like built into its narrative. You know, you know what movie came, uh, preceded this that proved that such a thing was possible is is uh, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, right? I mean, you got, mm-hmm. it, that, that that is a movie that, in the final third, kind of kind of wanders permanently onto you know a Hollywood backlot and and just brings it incorporates it right into the rest of the kind of road movie adventure of it all. And so so I think you can see you know how this noir could could you know be be integrated with this wacky Hollywood cartoon world in a way that's completely smooth. Yeah. Fun fact, when Disney was first putting together its test footage to see if this movie would work, Paul Rubens was the person that they got to voice Roger Rabbit. So, see, it you know, all comes together. It does all come together. Maybe they were aware that uh, there was there was kind of a, a tonal connection there. I think Genevieve exactly put her her finger on it. Uh, she she beat me to the punch on that one. But the <laughs> finally, fact- finally, I beat Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that uh, tunes are are playing characters for the most part, like that, pretty much anything you associate Dumbo with doing, you can say, well, you know, that wasn't this Dumbo. That was the character this Dumbo was playing. Just like lets you play around a lot with tone. And maybe because of the licensing issues, like the the movie doesn't do a ton with that. It's not like you see Dumbo like, you know, beating up on his lady and snorting cocaine uh, because the the actor is a lush. Yeah, but- I don't know. Do do any of the licensed characters break character, or, or do we only see that from like the originals? Yeah, no, that's that was kind of what I was saying. It's like I don't think anyone breaks character. I think they're all very much as as you meet them. It's not like you, you don't get like well, you know well, Pinocchio, you know, in the gutter or whatever. And contrast that with Baby Herman. Like to go back to that uh, opening sequence and the pullback. Like one of the biggest reveals of that is that Baby Herman is like a fifty year old stogie smoking grump that with with, with uh, dinky problems. Yeah, exactly. Who, who? He, does, he does cry like a baby though. He does well, not only, but he not only swears. Like in that first moment, he he sticks his hand up a woman's skirt and gooses her. Yeah, like, like there's a lot in that moment of okay, this is just very clearly a character that he was playing that that he's physically suited for, but that has nothing to do who he really is. And that's that's a great little piece of Hollywood bubble popping. And I'd say like even more than Roger in that opening, like the reveal of of Roger as an actor, like the baby Herman, I think is more important to establishing what we're talking about, you know, because the, the, the Roger that we see when the cameras stop rolling, isn't that different uh, from the one that we see in that initial cartoon, whereas baby Herman is like completely opposite. Yeah, up to and including having a completely different voice. You know, uh, Charles Fleischer's on-screen and off-screen Roger had the exact same voice, but, you know, Baby Herman goes from high-pitched goo-goo-ga-gas to, you know, having having the voice that he has. Oh, my God. I can't, uh, Just another random thing, because I keep going back to this thought of, of setups and, and, and payoffs. There's a, an incredible fake setup. It's set up for a fake payoff or for a payoff that doesn't work out that I love in this movie, which is the which is uh, Bob Hoskins with the cartoon gun that he's bringing into <laughs> yeah. to town. And, 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 and he fires with the bullets the that would not pass muster by today's standards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The bullets just the bullets just, you know, he fires them off. They don't know what they're they, they don't go the right direction. He throws the gun away. I it's just it's so great because because, again, it's that checkoff thing you're expecting. Uh, you're expecting the, the these the, this gun and the, these bullets to have a major impact of the story, and then they then it's just a total failure. And I just I, I love it. 
There's also, I mean, just sort of thinking about the the layers on layers on layers here. There's the point where he pulls out the singing sword in order to fight Judge Doom, and it immediately has the face and and voice and is doing a character of Frank Sinatra. So it's uh, part of the gag there is that it's useless to him as a sword because it's not a sword. It's a singing sword. Part of the gag is that it's a cartoon sword. So it's unpredictable and goofy. But part of the gag is that this is something that Looney Tunes used to do all the time, you know, bring in stars of the era and and turn them into cartoon animal versions of themselves or, uh, you know, otherwise like reference the the warner brothers studio a lot and things going on on it it's like a visual gag and a toontown gag and a reference to completely different studios like running gag of a completely different era all at the same time yeah i I think one of the most fascinating things about this film is seeing the different uh studios creations interact with one another i mean you get uh, big moments like Daffy Duck and, and Donald mm-hmm. Duck and, and one of Mickey my and, favorites. And Bugs. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems great. The Mickey and Bugs one is probably one of the more anticlimactic moments of the film. Yeah. But but and and you, you can you can almost read the contract where they each had to get uh, exact number same number of lines or whatever. But the Donald and and uh, uh, and Daffy stuff is 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 remarkable. But more than that, I, I just love seeing like you know characters like like Betty Boop and you know far more obscure characters than that. Uh, uh, you know walking around in the background and or just having small roles to play you know it's amazing that they're able to able to do that for one thing but also to make it not seem incongruous is 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 pretty cool as well well and one of the cool details that i think helps there is that you know with these legacy characters like Donald and Daffy and Mickey and Bugs is that they are portrayed as they as they were in the era in which this film takes place like these are you know characters whose uh, character design evolved over over the decades but we mm-hmm. are getting the the 1940s uh, Bugs and the you know the 1940s Daffy um, which is just a cool little detail and speaking of the Betty Boop thing I I love the line she has about, you know, things have been a little tough since the pictures went over to color. And, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about like how when you take away the cartoon element, so much of this movie is like real life, you know, like like uh, the the highway, uh, you know, the Los Angeles highway uh, thing is, you know, right out of history. And Betty's line is it feels like directly evocative of a, a big shift in Hollywood. But from silent to talkies, you know, which uh, also changed a lot of performers' uh, career trajectories. And it feels like a a nod to that. But it also, at the same time, it feels like a nod to singing in the rain and, you know, the shift from from silence to, to talkies. There's just that, again, that feeling of just mm-hmm. like layers on layers. And I think one of the things that the movie invites you to do is just consider like, how many roles are there out there for a hippopotamus in a tutu that knows ballet? <laughs> Just like, okay, it's great that you got your your perfect signature role in Fantasia, but like, what are you doing with the rest of your career? Do you just immediately become a has-been? And it's like, there's a sense that performers like Roger and Baby Herman have series built around them. And like they even made some more cartoons with the two of them that were just in that same like, you know, Tom and Jerry, Sylvester and Tweety, just cartoon slapstick up and down the wall uh, kind of thing. But none of these characters have, they've got the malleability of cartoons in that they can be smashed by an anvil and spring back, but not in the sense that they can change what they look like. So if your role doesn't happen to call for like a four foot tall rabbit with with two feet of ears with a, a stutter and like gigantic blue eyes who wears red overalls and, and smashes things. Like if you don't want specifically that role, we don't have a role for you. These, these tunes do not have like chameleonic powers to fit into different kinds of stories. Well, and think that, that, I mean, they, they also are unkillable and don't age. And uh, so when their time is up, when that when in the industry, <laughs> what are they going to do? They're going to live their, uh, their eternity as Pojack Horseman or something, right? It was just being like a has-been for forever. Um, though I don't think the film is, it doesn't get that dark, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily explain to us why Betty Boop needs a job. Like, 
tunes have rent? Do tunes need food? What like what are what are the needs of Betty Boop that require a job? I think Betty wants to perform. I think she wants Jessica Rabbit's slot, but she is, uh, you know, all she could get was the cigarette girl. Oh, <laughs> uh, so she's kind of hanging out in the bar for the day that uh, Jessica doesn't show up. Exactly. You, you know, what I think though, guys, she still got it. <laughs> she does still got it. <laughs> boop boop be doop. <laughs> you know, Eddie's response to her, I just think, is one of one of a, a billion tiny touches in this movie that makes it a lot more human than mm. it necessarily needed to be. Like it's it's a very glossy slapstick comedy full of like outsized cartoon characters and cartoon violence. But we're told that like through that that photo and clipping montage that Eddie and his brother used to champion tune rights and we see in his response to betty that like he made friends among tunes he had attachments in general to that world it was important to him and his clear sympathy for her but like his resolution to not show pity and like to comfort her but not act like he's comforting her is just like a really significant human moment for him kind of cutting through like the big grouchy demeanor that he walks around wearing all the time. And I do think that is very attributable to Hoskins' performance. I like I think like that's you I could imagine that scene being performed perhaps by like a Harrison Ford <laughs> type and like not having that humanity and being just like gruff and that side of Eddie. Like when we were talking about his performance and uh, like we maybe kind of briefly touched on it, but like there is a real warmth and humanity to it that is really important and just like giving us glimpses of that side of Eddie without, you know, actually there being dialogue to that effect. Yeah, I I think part of the alchemy of this movie is just that a lot of these characters, you know, Dolores is also a type and she's being played in a, a big, broad, brassy kind of way that fits into that type. But there's there's a there's a sense of humanity under like the trappings there as well. And I just think that there's a lot of that throughout this movie that yes, speaks to the the talent of the individual actors, but also kind of points at Zemeckis not just being a like a George Lucas like manipulator of effects who doesn't really care all that much about actors. I, I don't think that you get performances like this if your director doesn't really care what his actors are bringing across. I think we can uh, apply that to Kathleen Turner's voice work too, uh, as, as Jessica Rabbit, which I think is very good. <laughs> we haven't I, we haven't talked much about Jessica. No, and you're right; she really sells that line. <laughs> the, 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 the signature line is "I'm not bad, I'm not drawn that way," as yeah. we touched on before. But like the way she the way she delivers it is like with sincerity, but also like she can't help but be breathy and seductive as she says this as well. Yeah. It's, it is really a nice choice. I think this movie in some really interesting and subtle ways is just constantly asking us to question everything. Like, I think that opening cartoon invites us to question, like, why is it funny when the sympathetic character, like, nearly gets a, a cleaver in the crotch when he gets set on fire and he's like in pain all the time. Why why do we keep coming back to that in animation? Like why do people think that's funny? I think the whole character of Jessica Rabbit kind of invites us to consider like why do we decide like what a woman's character is based on like how big her breasts are, how long her legs are. I think a lot of the Eddie Valiant story invites us to like question bigotry. Why are these tunes considered second class citizens? Why do humans feel superior to them and uh, like abusive towards them when they just want to make people laugh? Like there's a weird level of question everything going on in this movie that, again, isn't overt. It isn't ever preachy, but I, I think it's very smart in a a really strangely subversive kind of way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by one element of that, which is that separation between you know the, the sort of live action human world and in Toontown and and uh, the way that kind of figures in again to the LA noir tradition and the way the city was built and and 
you know, segregated. And just, uh, that seemed very pointed to me to have to have the map drawn uh, uh, the way it is. So just uh, that, again, struck me as historically pointed, again, in a way that this film did not need to be, but it is. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's a whole lot of weird layers, if you think about it, because on one hand, Toontown is, is basically a ghetto. You know, all of the individuals in this town of this type live in their own neighborhood and the rest of us just don't go there. But then when the story goes there, it's kind of a joyous place. It's it's kind of like brighter and and more beautiful than the rest of the world. At the same time, it really is a place that's dangerous for people that don't belong there because Eddie Valiant isn't a cartoon character. And yet when he's in Toontown, he behaves like a cartoon character. You know, he gets he gets literally flattened or uh, smashed against things or, you know, just his body smushes in ways that human bodies don't. So there's just kind of this ongoing, you know, when you when you step into our like segregated area, you kind of become one of us even if you don't want to, like, even if you can't really integrate, even if you don't really belong. And I'm not sure what all of that is saying. Like the, the Toontown sequence, I think is maybe the hardest for me to digest in all of this because it's so wacky and it's so much just like, yeah, let's just, let's just play with, uh, let's play with bodies. Let's play with the camera. Let's play with nonsense, but like kind of integrating it into the, under somewhere under the surface, this is all serious stuff, uh, like elements of the rest of the story. It's it's kind of a weird interlude. Yeah, without saying I dislike it, because I don't, I think the whole Lena hyena thing is probably like maybe the low point of the movie for me. And it's where we do get the uh, kind of what you're what you're talking about here, just because it feels like at this point, the the movie has like evolved beyond this, this tone, I guess, to go to go back to what we were talking about before, you know, like, we're, we're right in the middle of the mystery. And we take this like digression for like more cartoon mayhem. And I don't like, again, I don't dislike it, but it does feel like a little bit of a it doesn't fl- fit the flow of the film quite as gracefully as everything else. It feels like it could be excised without losing anything, which is just not something you can say for like the vast majority of, of scenes or lines in the film. It feels kind of tacked on. I guess we wouldn't get the uh, Mickey Bugs moment. I like but... the Mickey Bugs. I like the spare. The spare is a good joke. And also the thing where he's, where, you know, bird uh, tweet is tweety, right? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's cute. All that stuff is cute. And I think, I, I think it works because you, you know, you, I mean, this is a family film <laughs> and, and, and I think you do kind of crave that cartoon element that you that you get right away when the movie begins and then and then things get a little more uh complicated or a little more there's a little more gra- you know gravity in- introduced um <laughs> gravity uh, yeah <laughs> so, so, so I, I i didn't mind i didn't mind I, I didn't mind that i didn't mind that element of the movie really i think it might just be lena hyena in particular that i don't love that that character the a oh, man <laughs> you, you know like like I, I feel like there there may have been another way to get those Tweety and Bugs and, and Mickey moments without, you know, resorting to this character who is not like an established character, right? This is another original. I'm not missing something. I'm not either. sure. I, I will say I find that character a little cartoonish, to be honest. <laughs> oh, wow. That, God, what an insult. Uh, like, really taking this movie down a peg. Yeah, it's, you know, it's playing into an old stereotype where, uh, you know, the only obviously the only sexually aggressive women are the ugly ones uh, and the ones that you'd run away from. And, uh, you know, the fact that she's a, a cartoon on top of all of that, it's just another weird layer. Uh, she is original to the film. I, <laughs> I, I have determined. So <laughs> Thank you. They can't all be Roger Rabbit. So I, I kind of want to ask the group uh, um, uh, about the villain in, in this, about Judge uh, Doom. Like what, what, what do you make of his motives? The fact that he's he himself, the revelation that he himself yeah. is a tune. Like, uh, uh, this seems like there's a lot there to unpack. Self-loathing, man. <laughs> uh, it does seem like he maybe wants to be more than a second-class uh, tune citizen. But I will ask, uh, kind of compounding on that, I, uh, something that's always bugged me. Like, does it bother you that we have no idea why he killed Eddie's brother? Like, is that... 
it's a, a big part of the mystery itself, like the mystery behind the mystery. And it's not like a character like that maybe needs a lot of reason to murder somebody. But I just I do feel like there could have been maybe a little more to that story than, by the way, I killed your brother. Well, I think that Doom killed Teddy Valiant uh, uh, after he robbed the bank, which is how he got the money to buy the judgeship. Like, it, like it, I guess Teddy was on to him in his tune form, which is maybe why he is uh, another reason why he has uh, opted to not take the form of a, of a tune too. But it's it seems like it's probably wrapped up in whatever scheme made him become Judge Doom instead of just Doom. Well, there is a lot going on at every moment of this movie. It is entirely <laughs> possible that uh, I missed that element of it. I don't think I got it until until this time, and I may have had to look it up to confirm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I want to know more about him than that, though. Like in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, if this if this movie had been made for the first time this year and had been as much of a box office success as this was in its time, uh, by now they already would have oh, greenlit man. the prequel that's the Judge Doom story where we get to see him like six episode miniseries uh-uh. <laughs> he's running around as a, a tune and then he discovers how to be become a human and he starts to enter that world and like the 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 old Pat Oswald like knowing where the things that you love come from doesn't make them better uh, kind of rubric here I think that a lot of what's scary about him I mean, a lot of it is like he has a terrifying face and a terrifying voice and he's horribly murderous and sadistic and he has like knives for eyeballs. Like, I, I don't know that I want to know Judge Doom's backstory. He's just scary. No, the, no, absolutely do not want to know. But it is interesting <laughs> to speculate uh, just in terms of like how he was you know, passing as someone who's not a tune, who somebody who has this hostility this extraordinary hostility towards his own kind, I guess, uh, to, to the point where he uh, is, has found a way to, to kill these unkillable beings. Again, makes it very scary, but also uh, kind of an interesting, complex character, you know, on top of just a scheme, which is, which is you know, uh, a typical power-hungry, we're going to build this city in the most corrupt way possible scheme, which is, you know, the whole freeway thing. I don't know. There's a lot to that character, and uh, but you're right in the sense that we we don't want to know. It, it would be terrible if the film just like had that kind of villain monologue where he explains his whole story and why he's doing all of this. Uh, he he does explain what he's what he's doing. He explains the freeway thing, which is great, but but uh, he explains his plot, but not his motivation. Exactly, which yeah. is the right the right move for sure. One of my favorite little doom details i guess is uh during that uh scene where he's like explaining his plot like when he's entering and uh like a box of acme fake eyeballs has spilled all over the floor and he's like walking slowly and deliberately with his cane and then has just like a little tiny stumble on one of on one of the the balls but but he recovers you know he doesn't he doesn't take the prat fall because he's like repressing that tune side of, of himself but then later of course he takes the spill he was destined to take uh just another one of those very chef's kiss details now just go listen to our episodes on imitation of life and passing for literally everything we say about the phenomenon of passing in those uh those two episodes about those two movies apply it here as necessary to self-hating tune who (laughs) passes as human and suppresses all of his uh, tune instincts in order to live in a world he never made yeah, one of my favorite bits of they don't really explain all the logic of this, but I do I do love Rogers. I can only do something if it, if it, if it's funny. Yeah, uh, and, and the way that works too. I was going to say we we we've, we mentioned like how there's not a prequel and a spinoff series and et cetera et cetera like there would be now, but it is kind of odd that this was the end of the line for Roger Rabbit. I think there were two more shorts that played before Disney movies in the next couple of years and then that's kind of it there was talk of a sequel or a prequel uh one set in uh during during world war ii was the one that i think they got furthest along in development but it's kind of surprising that there wasn't something is that okay i i feel okay with it i kind of like it being its own singular thing but on the other hand this if i do see it is it does seem like the kind of movie that you could create a uh, more you know extend and and have uh other fine installments 
Well, Keith, as a matter of fact, uh, we are going to get into that in our next episode. And we're also going to get into uh, a new movie that does, in fact, bring back Roger Rabbit as it happens. I accidentally do a segue to the next episode. (laughs) If you did that accidentally, then you accidentally did a segue. You you could not suppress your inner podcast host. You must segue, but only when it's funny. Okay, that was pretty funny. So uh, yeah, we're actually going to get into all of those things at least a little bit uh, next week when we talk about a completely different film that not only sort of takes up the, the Roger Rabbit mantle, but specifically brings back Roger Rabbit himself. We'll wrap this episode of The Next Picture Show. Uh, In our next episode, we're going to look at Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which was very much conceived as a modern day Who Framed Roger Rabbit. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film that you want to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share responses with us and other listeners. Look for the next episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, including letters from other listeners, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We would like to answer your feedback on Feedback Friday, but first you have to mail us feedback. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, I just have one question for you. Is that a rabbit in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? Oh,